Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, I am your host Ethan Bridge and I want to thank you all for joining me. On today's episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking to Drew Dudley. Drew is an internationally acclaimed leadership speaker, Wall Street Journal best-selling author and the creator of the renowned TED Talk Everyday Leadership. Drew's clients have included some of the world's most well-known organisations, including McDonald's, Procter & Gamble and JP Morgan Chase, so he definitely walks the walk. Somewhere around the middle of his undergraduate education, Drew realised engaging with the world was a lot more fun than writing papers about it. As he moved into his career, he took on the challenge of creating and building the Leadership Development Programme at the University of Toronto, which became the largest and most dynamic in the country. It was those leadership students who changed the course of Drew's professional life. They secretly organised a campaign to put him on stage at TEDx Toronto in 2010, where he delivered a talk that would go on to generate more than 5 million views around the internet. However, a high-achieving lifestyle took its toll. Undiagnosed bipolar disorder set the foundation for binge eating and drinking, and Drew grew to over 300 pounds while struggling with the emotional challenges of a career that kept him on the road 250 days a year. Recognising how many people were struggling silently with their battles, Drew began infusing these experiences into his keynotes, hoping to remind people that their scars in no way stand in the way of their leadership. I can't wait for you all to hear what Drew has to say, so without any further ado, let's go straight into the episode. Enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I cannot wait for you to join me on today's episode because I have the pleasure of speaking to Drew Dudley. Drew, how are you doing on this fine day? It's. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm surviving February in Toronto, Canada. So there's not much more you can ask. Cold, I can imagine. You know what? Gray. We can deal with the cold. <laughs> if you're Canadian, you're naturally, but it's just the days after day of gray that it does have an impact on you. So you're not alone out there if everyone's trying to slog through February here. Let's hope <laughs> that we can fire some energy up for for we're, we're definitely used to that gray over here in England. So it's definitely something we have in common. That's, there. <laughs> that's true, I suppose. Yeah. So for those, for, so for those of the listeners that don't know who you are, if you don't mind just giving us a quick 60 second introduction of who you are and what you do, please. Sure. Right now, I'm the CEO of a company I started. We're called Day One Leadership. I'm actually the founder and chief catalyst because one of the cool things about starting your own company is you can make up whatever name you want as your title. And I was told that master and commander was a little over the top. So (laughs) I'm the, the, the founder and chief catalyst. I love the word catalyst because the idea is that it's not you that creates the momentum and you that creates the power. It's that a catalyst unlocks the power in others. So I really, that's how I started out. For about a decade, I ran the leadership development program at the University of Toronto, which is Canada's largest university. And while we were there, we developed a process that we hoped would allow people to better engage in leadership behaviors and give themselves credit for it. And about a decade ago, I left the university to start to travel around and work with companies to try to redefine leadership. And I think on a on a really foundational note, is to try to point out and correct some of the dangerous things that people were taught about leadership along the way. And that's really where I've rolled here. I was supposed to be a lawyer, because when you're in high school or secondary school, 
and you get good grades and they're not in science, you're supposed to go to law school. And then about halfway through my undergrad, I realized I really like engaging with the world more than writing papers on it. And I was really lucky that quite by accident, I ended up moving from the idea that I was going to law school to running the program at U of T and then sort of spinning off into what I do now, which is to, to speak, to run workshops, and to write about how leadership needs to be relearned. For sure. And I cannot wait to dive more into that. And the fact you touched on school is superb because it's the way I like to start all my episodes. So I like throwing it back with my guests to their time at school. So let's focus on a 14-year-old version of yourself. How were you in school at that time? Were you the class clown? Were you a straight-A student? Or did you just coast by and get done what needed to get done? Oh, I was straight-A boy. I, I My entire self-worth was tied up in how good I looked on paper. And it's interesting, <laughs> and I try to talk to students about that, because when you're young, really, there's two ways that you can get validation for the most part as a young person, either grades or athletics. And what you often find is that if individuals find that those two avenues aren't going to give them uh, self-fulfillment, that's where you start to see a lot of the bullying and things start. Is I think that a lot of, it's always about trying to feel like you matter and that you have a purpose. And one of the problems with the education system is that if you're not great at school and you're not great at athletics, it's really easy to start to feel as if you really don't have a place. And some of those individuals start to feel as if they matter by bullying other people. But yeah, I was a straight A student and I thought that's what I had to be because I kind of, everything I did in my life was about looking good on paper, right? That resume, you know, your grades and then your extracurriculars and all your volunteer work because I treated my life as if, now I look back and I realize I was living my whole life when I was 14 for people that I hadn't met yet. And by that, I mean, you're in high school or I guess in secondary school in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, we call them both over here, is that ultimately you're living your life to get into a good university, right? Um, so I was living my life in high school for university admissions counselors. And then you get to university and you're living your life for grad school admissions counselors. And then you're in grad school and it's all about the first person who's going to hire you. And then when you're in a job, it's about where am I going to be able to move up? And eventually what you do is you end up living your whole life for people you haven't met yet. And when I go back to my 14-year-old self, I'd say, hey, look, and this is what I try to pass on to students now, is that, look, you should work incredibly hard to make your grades extraordinary. Like, your grades will open doors for you. They'll kick down doors for you. Like, they're an incredibly important part of who you are, but they're not a measure of your worth as a human being. And way too many C students out there start to convince themselves that they're C people. Too many A students convince themselves that they're A people because they're really good at writing tests and essays. And I think we have to stop teaching kids, and we're teaching them. It might, it's learned, even though it's never explicitly taught, that their self-worth is really tied up to how, well, how good they look on paper. And so one of the things I really wish I could tell my 14-year-old self is like, look, you should work really hard to make your grades extraordinary, and then you should work twice as hard to make them the least impressive thing about you. And I wish I could go back and tell them that. And that's why whenever I do get a chance to speak to younger people, is I, I really try to hammer that idea home, is that you're going to spend the first 20 years of your life writing other people's tests in order to feel validated and rewarded. But for the most part in life, the only tests that really define who you are are the ones you choose to give yourself. And we don't really train people to give themselves tests in, in school. 
And so all of a sudden you're 22, 23, and people aren't testing you anymore the way you've known. And we haven't yet learned how to, to, pick, to pick and pass our own tests. So that might be a longer answer than the question <laughs> demanded. But yeah, who I was when I was 14 was kind of pathetic. Even though from an external perspective, I was probably everything that a student was supposed to be. Uh, but when I look back now, I'm pretty, I'm pretty upset with myself for working less on becoming a person and working more on pleasing other people by looking good on paper. And I completely agree with you because I think that's such a powerful thing to say as well, because I'd say even the teachers are focused on the papers and the grades of the students as well. Well, it's their job to obviously, but for example, where I went to school, it's so focused on the fact that you get good grades, you go to university, you get good grades at university, you get a good job. <clears throat> but I didn't want to go to university at school. I wanted to get an apprenticeship. I knew I didn't want to go to university. And when I told my school that, they had nothing prepared for me. And it, was, and it sort of like took them by surprise. It Maybe they thought they almost needed to take a step back because they knew it was another option. But they just hadn't thought about it because no one at my school really wanted to go down that route. So when me and a couple of other people, it was like a school of 150 people in that year said, oh, we want to do apprenticeships. They were like, sorry, who, what, what's that sort of thing? So well, I, I, I don't, I, you're sorry, man, go ahead. No, it's, and it's, I, it just goes to show that, yes, obviously the grades are extremely important because I still got good grades and I worked on that. But as you say, they don't define you as an individual. Well, they do if you let them. And, yeah. and I, I don't want to be too hard on teachers. Like I rag on the education system, but I did spend, you know, 15 years in it, 20 years in it. And so I want to be clear that the teacher, like teachers care about their students almost like sure. almost without a doubt. They care so much about their students. And what's happened is a system sort of come into place where they don't want to mislead their students. They don't want to send them down a path that won't reward. And let's face it, going away to university post-secondary does have, you know, inherent benefits but the problem is it's been structured in such a way that people are kind of forced to do it who shouldn't be doing it like i'm feeling a little saucy today so let's let's straight up put it university is a scam all right like for some people it's really worthwhile but it used to be for doctors lawyers architects engineers researchers people who wanted to go on and now we've created this system where basically if you want to qualify in any way for the workforce. You have to jump through this hoop. Half the students I worked with at the university shouldn't have been in university. Like in no way. And look, I'm not saying that they were dumb. Like they were brilliant kids. They just shouldn't have been in university. They were just there because it's what you do next. Because we've, the business world and the, and the university world kind of work together so that the business world says, well, we don't want to have to invest in people without knowing there's going to be a payoff. So tell you what, you guys take this position of prestige in society and you get to be the ones who vet people for us. And then we'll just pick and choose the ones that you tell us are smart enough to graduate high school because they graduated undergrad. And what, there's a guy, there's a great book called uh, what, What's Wrong with University and How to Make it Work for You Anyway, which was written by a Canadian student who was actually one of the students at my university he had come back as a senior student or a mature student. He was in his 30s when he came back. And so he had a, a different perspective on the education system because he'd been out and had come back and had sort of seen the little 
intricate system that had sort of been built between the universities and the business world, which is the universities get to seem prestigious and important, and the business world uh, doesn't have to invest in much as young people to assess whether or not they have talents and skills. Now, when you think about it, oh, I'm going to get crap for this, but look, um, basically what universities are saying to you is this, okay, you give us the equivalent of a down payment on a house, and we will promise you a payoff, except it's not us who's responsible for giving you the payoff. Like, you give us the money, you invest in us, and your hope is that there will be a payoff for it down the road, but it's not going to be us who gives you the payoff. Just trust us. No, that's a, that's a terrible deal. And we're just buying into it all the time. So I, I think that one of the things that let's not be hard on teachers because look, they have to operate bad systems don't have to have bad people in them to be bad systems. And I think teachers are extraordinary. And when I talk about the type of leadership I read about in my book and that I want people to recognize, teachers are front and center in the type of people I'm talking about in terms of uh, everyday leaders and in many ways underappreciated leaders, but they are working in a system that demands that they treat students a certain way, that convinces students that there is a certain way of looking at the world and rewards a particular type of intellect. And most of the students that I worked with at the university would have been far better served entering the workforce, maybe bouncing around two or three or four jobs, being mentored, learning where their skills are, and the whole time they got paid. Even if you end up in three different jobs over those four years, you got paid the whole time. We talk about economic stimulus packages in our country, in the UK, in the United States, and the number one thing that we could do to spur the economies of those countries is to stop forcing the youngest members of the workforce to spend all of their time paying off debt and actually have the opportunity to invest in the industries that drive our countries. You know, they talk about where you know, people are buying fewer cars, which is probably a good thing environmentally as well, but young people aren't buying houses. They're paying off their visa bill and their student loans. This is a fundamental economic problem with our system now is that we are condemning the youngest, most dynamic pieces of the workforce to uh, starting their entire lives with debts. Now, I don't, we aren't really talking leadership here, but I, I just wanted to say that unpopular opinion is that we really need to stop forcing people into debt to start their career. It is a terrible thing that we're doing economically. Money isn't everything, but debt can be. And we were screwing up the lives of young people in their early 20s for education that the best thing they get from their time at university and college is each other. And that's it. I could rant on about this all day. Yeah. <laughs> that question normally gets answered in two minutes. Yeah, you'll find that most questions that get answered in two minutes, I will take longer on. Uh, and I, I'll tell you, man, you, you caught me on a weird day. Like, I honestly, <laughs> as I'm saying, I'm feeling a little saucy today. You caught me on a weird day where I'm just like, Let's lock and load on some things. Well, I, well, I'm glad I caught you. Um, <laughs> I, I do agree with everything you're saying, and I don't regret not going to university. I don't regret not going to university. I, again, haven't built up that debt, and I've been mentored by some incredible people. And the, one of the biggest things for me was I knew that I didn't need the degree to get into the job that I'm doing now. And if I were to do the degree at university and apply for the grad scheme, I'd be up against 40,000 other applicants. Only 1,000 people applied for my apprenticeship scheme. The chances yeah. of me actually getting a foot in the door were so much higher. And now I've been there for almost three years and my friends are going to be are coming out of university this year. 
And they've almost got no chance unless they've got degrees from Oxford, Cambridge, Bath, the top universities in the UK. So that was my argument. And I think so far for me, it's paid off. So, I think the key is, is why, my friend. And, and look, anyone listening to this, I'm not saying that you shouldn't consider university, but why are you going? I'm talking to young people yeah. who uh, are making a whatever thousands of dollars investment over four years of their lives. And when I ask them why, they're just like, well, I want a job. You don't go to school to, to get a job. You go to be educated to become the type of person who is great at jobs. And you can get that education in a lot of different places. And the more companies that stop demanding undergraduate degrees for jobs that honestly don't require them, the better off we're going to be economically worldwide. For sure. And I do want to move away from this subject before we yeah, spend I was gonna the, say full, the full hour talking about the education system. But still, whilst you are around school age, would you have considered yourself entrepreneurial? And would you, even though you did get great grades, did you know you were going to end up working for yourself in the end? No, nah, not a clue. I just read a book, uh, and I might be paraphrasing here, that said entrepreneur is Latin for terrible employee. <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't realize I was a terrible employee uh, for, you know, what, 10 years into my career. And Although you could ask my old bosses and they probably would have told you that. And, yeah, no, I never imagined that I'd be doing this. this I didn't really think of very many options for my life. You're, you're good at school, you get good grades, um, you're not a big on science, you go to law school, like I said. And I just, I didn't think about what I wanted, I just thought about what would make me look good. And because my whole life I'd just been like, someone else tell me what to do. If you spend your life, because I spent my life trying to figure out what the person with the power wanted and then I delivered it to them. And I think what we do teach that to a lot of young people. And I talk about leadership. And one of the key things I say is like, look, if you spend your life figuring out what the person with the power wants, whether it's your teacher, your professor, or your boss, and delivering it to them, yeah, you might be successful, but you'll never be a leader. You'll never truly be free. Because what does is your life gets driven by the question, what do I need to do? You know, what do I need to do to get to the best school? What do I need to do to get the best grades? What do I need to do to get the best jobs? And leaders are driven by a fundamentally different question. They're driven by the question, who do I need to be? Who do I need to be to be the type of person who is great at a job? Who do I need to be to make everyone around me shine brighter as opposed to what do I need to do to outshine everyone around me? Those, I think, are the key differences. And so I, I never saw myself as an entrepreneur because I didn't understand the concept of getting validation from yourself it was all from from the external and when you look for external validation it reinforces our traditional concepts of leadership because the idea is to get external validation you have to look upwards and it flows down and that reinforces the bureaucratic concept of leadership as we know it which excludes a lot of people from the idea of leadership for sure so what do you define as a leader then because i think in today's society those who m may be leaders might con not consider themselves as a leader for example teachers they may not be the ceo of a company but they do something every single day that impacts another individual's life so i personally think someone like that should be considered a leader so what do you consider a leader 
Yeah, we live in a world where the vast majority of leadership comes from people who don't think they're leaders. And I want to be very clear. I do not say, when I say that leadership is every day and leadership is in everyone, I am not saying that everyone can or wants to be a CEO, a senior executive, an entrepreneur who runs their own company. What I am saying is there is a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. And that leadership is striving to act every day in a way that closes the gap between the person you want to be and how you're actually behaving. And my argument is that a personal culture of leadership comes from acknowledging there's a gap between the person you want to be and how you're behaving, acknowledging that gap is your responsibility, and actually having a plan every day and acting every day to find a way to close that gap a little bit. It will never be fully closed. If the gap between who you want to be and how you're actually behaving is closed entirely, you need to have higher expectations for your behavior. But that's what leadership is to me. Closing the gap between the person you want to be and how you're actually behaving in a way that benefits as many people as possible. And that is a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. And a lot of people push back on the idea that, okay, well, everyone is a leader because it is a threat to individuals who have bought into the traditional definition of leadership. Because if you've worked hard to get your scholarships and gone and gotten six degrees and then have risen to the level of whatever, someone coming along and saying, well, everyone is a form of leader, seems as if they're diminishing your accomplishments. And a lot of people aren't crazy about that. I am not saying that that form of leadership and the responsibilities that come with it, being a vice president, a CEO, the leader of your own company, aren't impressive and shouldn't be respected. It is a form of leadership. It's not the only one. It is a very narrow form of leadership, and it's one we should celebrate, but I think we need to expand the definition a little bit. Uh, yeah, I agree. So with what you're doing now, you said you didn't know you ever wanted to actually end up working for yourself. Where did it start? Because I've spoken to quite a few business owners now, and some stumble into it, some aim for it, some just some for some reason for some people it just magically appears in front of them and they run with it. Like it's not there's no set way to end up doing what you're doing. So how did you come about your entrepreneurial journey? How did you get to the point in which you were at today? Yeah, I quit my job in the middle of a meeting, I think is what it was. Bold. You know, I I I really enjoyed working with my students. Uh, the students who are part of the leadership program at U of T. And then, you know, the, there was a, re like a reorganization of what we were doing. And I ended up working with and for individuals who I did not feel my values aligned with. And we did our absolute best to make it work. I'm not saying that their values were wrong. I'm just saying they were fundamentally different than mine. And we did our best to make it work. But it clearly was a toxic environment. and ultimately, you know, certain things that were supposed to happen didn't. And it got to the point where I became so frustrated that I just quit in the middle of the meeting and walked out, which is kind of like a douchey thing to do. Uh, but when you get, when you are in pain, you become incredibly selfish because that's a survival mechanism. And I was in such pain emotionally and spiritually where I was that eventually I just was like, I can't do this anymore and remove myself from that situation. Uh, and that's how I became an entrepreneur, by eventually reaching a breaking point where I realized I had two choices, either spiral into despair and, and 
you know, as someone who's bipolar, that can be very dangerous. Uh, and I, I am bipolar. Ultimately, I ended up walking away because eventually you can't work with individuals whose values don't align with yours. And that's basically what happened. And all of a sudden you wake up the next day and you realize that you just quit your job and you then sort of have to ask yourself, and I want to give full credit, like or full acknowledgement to this. I was a pretty bad employee. And so I kind of sat there and said, do I want to work for somebody again? Or do I want to try what I'm doing on the side? And I'm also not one of those entrepreneurs who's just like, you should jump, like just jump, quit your job. I don't think you should quit your job to chase your uh, business entrepreneurial dream unless you built your business on the side up to the point where the only thing holding it back from expanding is your full-time job. Because whatever you spend the daylight hours doing is where your attention is going to be fixated. And, and so eventually you get to the point where the only thing keeping your business from growing is the fact that you have a, a full-time job. That's when you make the leap. I do think that just diving in at the very beginning before you build a sustainable uh, infrastructure or at least foundation of revenue, I think is a dangerous thing to do. There's a great book called uh, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport, where the book jacket says, follow your passion is terrible advice. And I said, I'm going to hate this book. As soon as I read that, I'm like, because I'm, maybe you're not getting it in, in this particular day because it's been a weird week, but I'm actually like a really positive dude. And I thought, I'm going to hate this. And then Seth Godin had a little blurb on it that said, you know, you must read this book. And I know that Seth Godin is very much about identifying your passion. And so I read the book and it's this wonderfully practical analysis of, yeah, just diving in and be, to becoming an organic farmer before you have any idea whether or not you're any good at being an organic farmer is actually a pretty bad career move. And so uh, that's how I, I became an entrepreneur. I never envisioned it, uh, but it ultimately came down to when you are so miserable at your job that you feel physically ill before going into it every day, it doesn't matter what it pays you. It is costing you more. And I had a friend of mine at the time ask me quite out of the blue. He said, Hey man, how much would I have to pay you to be miserable for the next year? Like every day of your life, you'd had to be miserable. Uh, you'd, you'd hate life. Nobody dies and your health is okay, but you are miserable every day. Like how much money would I have to guarantee you to put a year of your life in abject misery? And I thought about it and I know everyone would like to be like, oh, nothing. No, no, there's a number for all of us. And I said, $3 million. You give me $3 million, I could be miserable for a year as long as no one, I, I'm not miserable because someone died uh, and I'm not dying myself. And he said, do you make less than $3 million a year at your current job? And I said, yeah. And then he just stared at me. And every now and then you need your friends to call you on that stuff. So he just mm -hmm. said, how much money to be miserable every day for a year? And then whatever that number is, if you're miserable and getting paid less than that, then you are doing it for the money. But the three most addictive things on earth are crack, carbohydrates, and a salary. And if you let yourself get hooked on any of those three things, you'll start making decisions that are not in your best interest. You got me really thinking how much it cost me to be miserable for a year now. And I don't know quite a lot because hey. I'm, I'm, I'm quite a positive, happy person. So if I start, start suddenly being miserable for a year, people would think, what the hell is wrong with me? And then we say we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't change things. That's always about money. 
yeah. and you're addicted to your salary then. And, and I think, you know, one of the key things is that as you decide to make uh, financial uh, commitments in your life, ask yourself, is this basically sticking a needle in my arm? Like, am I making decisions here? And usually it involves debt where what I'm doing is addicting myself to a salary and mm -hmm. be very careful with that. As I said, money is not everything, but debt can be. And that to me was not a lesson I learned early enough. I let myself get hardcore into debt and it becomes all encompassing. And that I think is, is really key to bear in mind is that when you decide to make a financial commitment, are you uh, setting yourself up for growth or are you effectively sticking a salary needle in your arm that's going to make you addicted and force you to make decisions that aren't in your best interest? Relates to another quote I heard the other day is, uh, money doesn't buy ha happiness, but poverty doesn't buy anything. True. Money doesn't buy happiness, but it can buy cheese. And that's the same thing. <laughs> Favorite cheese? Oh, Swiss, like Swiss Emmental. Like it's, mm. so I'm, a, I'm a blue that's cheese kind of guy. <laughs> first time in the history of all the podcasts I've ever done that anyone just tossed out what's your favorite cheese cheese is my spirit animal man so <laughs> oh yeah I do love cheese cheese and biscuits oh, at Christmas as well oh right off topic um, so people probably if they've heard of you before they've heard you because of your TED talk mm. I mean it's I've got the facts on the screen in front of me it's voted one of the most 15 inspirational TED talks of all time that's quite an incredible thing to have said about you how <laughs> I, I, mean, I wish i could prove that i wish i could prove that it was up on the site back when viewers could vote on uh, on their favorite talks it was it had moved up like through uh, viewer votes to the top 15 uh, like ranked by inspiration and then they took that page down uh and so people keep saying that and i'm like i wish i could actually show people that yeah. but it's been amazing i i mean people still Yesterday, people came up and said they're using it in their leadership courses and have been for like six years. And I have no idea that's going on. And that was a decade ago, that TED Talk yeah. that I delivered. And it's still making its way around, which I hope t uh, testifies to the, the idea of the message. But the other thing, too, is I don't think it's uh, technically a very good talk from a professional speaker perspective. I just want to say that on the record. But it means a lot to me that this many people have cared about that talk. And it's how I approached you to be on the podcast. And I thought when I sent the message, I thought, because I had only just listened to it and I thought I need to get this guy on. And I messaged him, I thought, this was 10 years ago that you did this talk. He's probably thinking, why is this people still coming on to me and talking to me about this? But I'd love to, I know you said it's not very technical, but the story in it is very amusing and oh. does work. I, I've really enjoyed it. And obviously you talk about this. So the whole premise of it is the lollipop moment. So if yes. you don't mind obviously not the length of the TED talk that you did, but just briefly for my listeners, talk about the story behind the lollipop moment. Sure. Well, whenever I put together a presentation or a talk, and this is something for anybody who's doing a speech, one of the first things you have to ask yourself is, of what is this audience afraid? Because people will listen to you when you speak if you talk about one of three things. Things that make them angry, things that make them scared, or sex. And so those three things will basically make people pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth. And the difference between leaders and politicians is that politicians talk about things to make you more scared because you are easier to control. Oh my God, I sound like such a conspiracy theorist. But you are much easier 
to convince to do things when you're afraid. So the difference between a politician and a leader is a politician adds fear to try to win and leaders try to remove fear in order to succeed. And so what I did is I, I sat down and I said, I've got six minutes of these people's lives. I talk about leadership. What are they afraid of? Because the number one thing to try to do on stage is not to be inspirational. It's to be useful. And so one of the ways to be useful is to ask yourself, what are these people afraid of? And how can I try to make them less afraid knowing what I particularly know? What is your particular tool to be useful? And so I asked, what is this audience afraid of? And I realized when it comes to leadership, most people are afraid to call themselves leaders because they think it'll make them look cocky or arrogant. They're afraid to call themselves leaders because there's so much they don't know. They're afraid to call themselves leaders because they're introverts or they're young or they don't have a bunch of money. And so what I wanted to do is put together a presentation that reinforced to people that they do not need to be afraid of recognizing their leadership and celebrating their leadership. Because if you allow yourself to feel good about something, you will do it more often. And so I wanted to demonstrate in a short period of time the idea that leadership exists in powerful interpersonal moments. And the, when I talk about moments of leadership, I talk about moments of kindness, empathy, empowerment, forgiveness, these things that we call the little things, but they're not little. They're the most powerful things we do. And we don't call them leadership. And what we do is that we don't think of them as powerful because most of the power on the planet has a, has a systemic barrier between that power and most of the people on the planet. There is. In almost every source of power, most people on the planet do not have access to that power. There are systemic barriers. But the ability to impact another human being profoundly in a single act, that is a power that is available to all of us. Everybody on this planet, from the richest person to the poorest person. And so I wanted to illustrate that because I've been lucky enough to, I guess from a step back objective perspective, accomplish a lot. I got to work at Canada's most prestigious university and I get to travel around and give keynote speeches. I got to write a bestseller. But what I wanted to do is talk about what may be one of the most powerful pieces of impact I've had in my life was a moment that I didn't remember. And it was from a young woman telling me like four years after the fact that on her first day at university, when she had decided to quit while standing in line for registration because it was so overwhelming, that I had wandered by promoting a charity I was running and was trying to engage people and connect with them by just handing out lollipops. And in her case, instead of giving her the lollipop, I gave it to the guy next to her and told him that he can use it to break the ice and talk to the girl next to him, which I now realize was not respectful of her personal space and very heteronormative, but in this case, it worked out. And he wouldn't even look at her. He just sort of holds the lollipop out and she said he was so embarrassed, I felt bad for him. So I took this lollipop from him. And you look so disappointed. And you turn to my parents and you tell them, it is your daughter's first day away from home. And already she's taking candy from a stranger. Nice parenting. <laughs> and she said, in the laughter that ensued, there's just something that changes in the way you look at the world when people are laughing. And she said, I put off quitting for a day. And then someone else did something and I put it off for another day. And after a certain number of days where people give you this one reason not to quit today, she said, I just stopped thinking about it. And I graduate in a few weeks. And I haven't talked to you in the four years since it happened, but I heard you were leaving and I had to tell you, you have been 
a really important person in my life and I'm going to miss you. And then as she walks off, I think she realizes how that had impacted me. And she turned around and told me, you know, there's one more thing you should know. I have been dating that dude for four years. And then a year and a half after I left the university, the two of them invited me to their wedding. <laughs> and I don't remember that moment. And I think that's the big piece is I do not remember the moment. It's this big, powerful thing that impacted another person. And then when she turned around and told me about it, it impacted me so profoundly that I started to realize that of all the things that I've done, that might be the biggest. And I don't remember it. And so what I was trying to talk is I understand that people are afraid of calling themselves leaders. But ultimately, what we have to realize is that it's not our titles and it's not our accolades or over time that really define who we are. It's how we behave on a day-to-day -day basis. And that moment where I wasn't paying attention, but I was trying to behave in a way that benefited others, ended up being a moment of leadership. And so I wanted to get people thinking about their lollipop moments people who had impacted their life in a moment, and have you told them that? And also recognizing that you probably created those moments as well. But all these moments of leadership are, are being ignored. And that was what it was. And, and as I move forward in my work, what I try to remind people is that the lollipop moment was an accident. I did not mean to do that. And what my work focuses on now is how can we consciously create more moments like that? So we've created a uh, a process rooted in behavioral psychology that makes it more likely that you will create these powerful moments of interpersonal impact because good leaders live their values whenever they get the chance. But what separates good leaders from great leaders is that good leaders live their values whenever they get the chance and great leaders create opportunities to live their values. And so what we wanted to do is look, if my mission in life is to have impact every day and sort of make people feel more welcome, I want to do more intentional lollipop moments. But what I wanted everyone in the audience to realize is that, look, you're always going to have plans and you should chase your plans with the biggest impact you'll have on the world will almost always be the result of the unplanned consequences of your everyday actions. So let's pay attention to those. Wow. And what a story as well. I mean, not only are you an incredible entrepreneur, you are the ultimate wingman. <laughs> Wow, I never thought of it that way. Well, you know, I, I think I was the ultimate wingman for a while because, you know, you go back to 14-year-old me and if you wanted to know the one, the one thing I could change that I thought back then is I thought I didn't deserve love, right? Like I just didn't. My whole life I was, was spent trying to look good enough so that somebody would actually think I was worth being with, worth loving. And when you don't feel you deserve it, you aren't open to it. And so I was the ultimate wingman because I thought, well, obviously I should support everyone else because clearly I don't deserve any kind of connection like that. That's a dangerous thing. And a lot of people are going through life believing I don't truly deserve love. And so you have to ask, is your entrepreneurial endeavors are all the things that you're doing about actually accomplishing those things and, you know, feeling fulfilled or is it all to impress somebody else? Uh, is it all to try to prove to somebody else out there? that you're worthwhile as a person. And that's a really dangerous thing to go through life doing. And I think early on for a lot of my career, when I look back now, I realized that's what I was doing. This wasn't about trying to do things that made me feel fulfilled or made me the person I wanted to be. It was ultimately about looking impressive enough so that 
I felt that I deserved somebody else's love, whether that was romantic love or any other kind of connection. And that's a dangerous thing that we wrap ourselves up in sometimes as entrepreneurs. And with regards to looking impressive, I mean, I watched your TED talk. I've got a picture of you up on the screen whilst you're doing that TED talk. You have lost (laughs) an incredible amount of weight since doing that TED talk. And yeah, about a hundred pounds. That is remarkable, and congratulations for that. Thank you. And so, where what made you? What brought that upon you? Why did you go about this weight loss journey? You know, because I started to like life. I think uh, was a big part. When I was at the, I was miserable, and obviously, yes, I, I am someone who lives with mental illness and bipolar for individuals who aren't familiar with it uh, involves uh, swings in your brain between two different states uh, between what they what depression which I think people who have experienced it understand those who haven't it isn't being sad it's like you know when you walk through a spider web and it sort of wraps itself around you and you know it's not part of who you are but it almost feels like it's actually melted into you depression is like a spider web, but instead of it being a web, it's despair. And it sinks into you, even though you know it's not who you are. And the other half is, is mania or hypomania, which is an elevated state where you don't need to sleep, uh, where you're capable of accomplishing a lot, where your mind is racing, but it also, you're, you don't catch social cues. You talk too much. You say inappropriate things. You spend money in a way that isn't good for you uh, or your future. You damage relationships uh, because you don't see these social cues. Uh, and so I was in a very depressed state and didn't like life. And then when I started to get to travel around, do what I love and start to feel as if what I was doing wasn't to look impressive, but actually helped people, I ultimately wanted to live longer. And then there's always this sort of coalition, or. Um, series of things that happens and my dad had another heart attack uh which started happening to him when he was a year older than i am now so he was 43 the first heart attack he had so that runs in my family i tried to get on a plane to go give a speech in orlando and the seatbelt wouldn't do up and that had been getting closer and closer and closer to happening but you just sort of deny it and then i spent an afternoon at universal studios on that same trip and waited two and a half hours in line to ride a roller coaster through the harry potter hogwarts land And uh, when I got to the front, the young man running the ride told me that, I'm sorry, sir, but this ride can't safely accommodate your dimensions. And made me walk down like the back staircase and out back into the park. And it was just a a collection of things. And then I got home and discovered that all of my insurance, like I applied for life insurance and critical illness disability, what you do when you become an entrepreneur, uh, I've been rejected for all of them. And my friend who had had a heart and lung transplant had been approved for life insurance. So to an insurance company, my weight was a bigger threat than someone's heart transplant health-wise. And that was an eye-opener. And I said, I would like to live and I'm not going to for very long. And so I didn't so much try to lose weight as gain health. And I started to realize that if I'm up on stage talking about the daily disciplined execution of particular values, and I'm doing it at 320 pounds, I'm clearly not making decisions that are in my best interest. So why should anyone give my suggestion that you do the same thing, any credibility at all? Yeah, because I was going to say, did people take you more seriously when you started taking leadership as such for your own life? Yeah, and it was just hard to go up there and 
continue to do what I believe in when I knew I wasn't doing something because not starting something that you know will make your life better is a form of giving up. And one of the things that I want to stress to people is that you should never hate your body. Like I'm not saying you should not hate your body, but you should not lie to yourself when it's unhealthy. Mm. And there are individuals who are big people who are incredibly healthy. There are people like who look like I did when I was 320 pounds who run marathons. Those are healthy people. But a lot of us who were big, who were overweight, who uh, it was not for any other reason than we made bad decisions for our health every day. And I was one of those people. Not everyone who's overweight is one of those people. I was one of them. And so you shouldn't hate your body ever, but you should not lie to yourself when it's unhealthy. And that's what drove me to do that. One, I wanted to be someone who had credibility both with myself and other people and because I started to really like life. And life is better when you're healthy. And I really appreciate you sharing that as well because obviously that's a very personal topic and obviously something that you don't actually have to share with the world. So I do appreciate you talking about it because it's, it's, it is really interesting. Well, thank you. And I always appreciate that. And maybe there's just something missing in my brain, some filter thing. But um, I also want to acknowledge that I talk about that. I talk about the fact I'm a recovering alcoholic in my presentations. And I talk about the bipolar all because they have something in common, which is the way of effectively dealing with them involves adopting non-negotiable behaviors that are part of every day. And I, I run a company called Day One Leadership. And the idea is one of the things I learned in alcohol recovery is if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you have to choose not to have a drink today. And then you have to treat every day of the rest of your life as if it's your first day of recovery. Because only on the first day is there the appropriate level of commitment, forgiveness, and humility. Mm -hmm. And what happens is instead of worrying about how many days remain to do this incredibly difficult thing, or all the screw-ups you made in the past, all you worry about are your decisions of today. And when it comes to my mental health, my physical health, my recovery, and my leadership, and everyone else's, it's about saying these behaviors every day are non-negotiable. And so that's where the tie-in is. What's interesting is I'll talk about my bipolar or my alcoholism or my weight loss for a total of about 90 seconds in my keynotes. And I get more emails about those, particularly the mental illness parts, than any other thing that I say. I get more emails about that than the lollipop moment TED Talk when people have seen me speak. And I appreciate that. And I think one of the reasons is, from a really young age, we're taught the way to look impressive is to make people look at you and say, oh, wow, I didn't know that, or oh, wow, I couldn't do that. And what I've realized is, quite by accident, that maybe the best thing we could do for others is to give them the opportunity to say, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one afraid of that. I thought I was the only one who needed that. I thought I was the only one hiding that. And so that's what I try to do because I also need to recognize that I am a straight white guy born in Canada who runs his own business and is financially independent, which means the consequences for me opening up about those things are less than any other person on earth. That's less than a woman doing it, uh, someone who is gay doing it, or any part of the LGBTQ community, uh, less than a person of color doing it, particularly women of color. I have the privilege of being able to say, I'm a recovering alcoholic, 
I'm someone who lives with mental illness. I'm someone who battle, who battles my weight. All of those things, when I say them, impact me less negatively than if anyone else did them. But until those of us with privilege in society start to make things okay like that, we cannot expect the individuals who have more barriers to their openness and freedom to be able to do it as well. So in this particular case, I think my privilege demands that I try and that the rest of us with that privilege start to hammer away at stigma because stigma starts to fall when those of us who have the most privilege and power take our responsibility uh, of, when you have that privilege of trying to help remove stigmas that affect other people far more profoundly than, than we do. And I'm not trying to pull some white male savior complex there. I'm trying to recognize the responsibility our privilege gives us. For sure. And it feeds quite nicely into my next segment of the podcast where I talk about failures as well, because as you say, we're, there's this picture we paint that of how we want to, perce- to be perceived by everyone else. And that never really reflects vulnerability. We never really share things we don't think other people want to hear about when in reality, a lot of other people are dealing with what you have dealt with. So they'd much prefer to hear about that than look at all your successes. Like Instagram is the biggest culprit, especially in entrepreneurship. If you scroll down it, all it is, is a highlight reel. There's at no point on an entrepreneur's feed, other than the odd few that promote the whole, it does take a lot of shit to get to this point. They, all it is, is them on nice holidays in nice houses with their nice cars. Like, but in reality, that took them a hell of a lot of time to get to that point. But we don't see the crap that they've been through. So mm. it feeds quite nicely into the next bit of where I do ask you what you think your two biggest failures have been in your journey so far. So what is your first That's a tough one because my whole life is, it is <laughs> a series of them, right? My biggest failure um, in my career was one, um, living my life. For people I hadn't met yet, mm. uh, from being a student all the way up to uh, starting my company. When you live your life for people you haven't met yet, you're failing to recognize the power you can have every day on the people who are around you. And it took me a long time to do that. Uh, that was a big failure to, to make that shift. Uh, you know, maybe I'll give you three. The other one, too, is that mm. failing to recognize that not starting something that will make your life better uh, is a form of giving up. Uh, not being open about my mental illness, not being open about my addiction, uh, when I knew that that was the case, because I thought it would make me look weak, it would like make me an embarrassment to the people who had supported me, and it would make me unemployable. And so I sacrificed the possibility of continuing to live because I didn't want to look bad. Uh, and so that was a failure as well. My life could have become a lot better a lot sooner if I had recognized that I have a responsibility. Uh, to myself and the people I love to take care of myself. And then the last one is working with individuals who make you money, who you know aren't necessarily good people. Like, but you don't see it yourself, Mm. right? Like I I just finished a relationship with someone and and I just, I knew years ago that this individual uh, wasn't someone that I would be proud to know I was working with except it was working and it didn't impact me directly how he treated other people because he never did it to me. 
And I stayed with that. And ultimately, you get stung, right? You know, it's the old story of the farmer who finds a snake and raises it back to health and they become friends. And then one day, 40 years later on the porch, the snake bites him. And as the guy lay there dying, he says, why would you do this? And he said, what do you expect? I'm a snake. And ultimately, it might be 40 years before you get bit, but you're going to get bit. And more importantly, what you're ignoring is biting other people. And you're complicit in that. When someone who makes you money is biting and poisoning other people, but not you directly, and you continue to keep that relationship, you are complicit in the damage it's doing to other people. And that was a massive failure on my part. In that instance, did you get bit or were you quick to realize you did? And you know what? (laughs) How selfish is it of me to now have a problem with it? Like that's the big failure in my case is like, I deserve to get bit. I deserve to get bit because I didn't live the values I claim to stand for. And uh, that is always a failure. But if you, if you hadn't got bit, I suppose you would never have learned that lesson. Maybe. Um, I'm look, I talk a lot about trying to live values and doing it the right way. And when you talk a lot about that, you become a lot more aware of when you're not doing it. And I'd like to think that it was getting to the point where, you know, I knew that that cognitive dissonance wasn't going to work, but I wish I'd, on behalf of all the people who got bit in the meantime, I wish that I had the strength and the courage to be better and I will be next time. And it's unfortunate that that has to happen. But again, a failure um, can adapt behavior. And when it adapts behavior, I'm not going to say it's not a failure, but it does uh, minimize the ones in the future making the same mistake. Failing doesn't mean you're going to make fewer mistakes. It means you're going to make fewer mistakes again. For sure. And they were some brilliant answers, I must say. And thank, thank you. you. For sharing. Um, that is not all I've got for you, though. I've got five okay. final questions before we wrap up the episode, and I call them the final five. So question number one. Who is the first person that comes to mind when I say the word successful? My friend, Blake. Why? Because Blake speaks about gratitude on stage and lives it better off stage than he does on stage because Blake is married to the love of his life and doesn't pretend that that's not work, that he consistently works on becoming the best possible person that he can be uh, and tries to bring other people with him and inspires us to do the same. I think most of your heroes should be people you know personally. Your leadership heroes should be people you know personally because you get to see how they make decisions and why. And everybody else in the world who we hold up as leaders always see are the outcomes and the PR spin of their decisions. And I think the biggest thing that, you know, when I think of success, honestly, success is being happy with what you have, even as you are driven to try to achieve more. I, I think that if you're driven to want to be more and grow and do better, that's awesome. But when you hit a point in your life where what you have you're happy with, even though your instinctive DNA is to try to continue to grow, that's success. If I didn't grow another step in my career right now, I'd be happy with what I have. And that to me is success. Well, and people who are driven, people who are driven to do better, but are happy with what they have now, those are successful people. Blake sounds like a guy I need to talk to. <laughs> you should talk to Blake. It, it'll make you feel bad about yourself, though. Man, <laughs> oh God, 
is amazing. Strap myself in. Um, what is the best investment you've ever made? So this can be money, time, energy, or just simply an Amazon purchase. <laughs> the best investment I ever made on those like leadership speaker level, it's in my health, 100%. Mm. It's in sleep. Sleep is the number one resource ignored by entrepreneurs. Failing to sleep adequately, I think it's about six and a half, seven hours a night over a long term is the same, has the same impact on your health as a pack of smokes a day. And it blew my mind when I read that. Read the book, Why, uh, Why We Sleep, The Surprising Science Behind Sleep and Dreams. It'll put you to bed early. Uh, not in a bad way either. Uh, so that, my health is the best investment that I ever made, whether it was going and seeking treatment for my bipolar, for my alcoholism, or uh, turning myself into a body that um, isn't spectacular, but is healthy. Uh, other than that, it is my foot massager and a weighted blanket. <laughs> I was going to say, if you didn't have an Amazon purchase, what would it have been? Um, it, it's, it's the foot massager that I currently have my feet in as I talk to you, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, do you have a quote that you live your life by or think of often? Yeah, I do. Um, a number of them, actually. I love quotations. I have several of them tattooed on my body. Uh, oh, here we the first go. one is, what would the man I want to be do? Uh, comes from uh, my personal leadership philosophy, which is when you don't know what to do in a situation, ask yourself, what would the person who I want to be do? And then do that. I have a quote down my left leg from the West Wing, which I can quote, I can name you a hundred from that show. But this one says, I've been down here before and I know the way out from uh, a very special episode, the first one I ever saw, where one person tells another a story about a friend jumping into a hole. And the first friend says, you idiot, now we're both in the hole. And the response is, I've been down here before and I know the way out. And it reminds me of my responsibility to not allow the fact I've fallen into holes to keep me from sharing that when other people are down there. I have a quote on my right leg from Lin-Manuel Miranda's masterpiece, Hamilton, that says, look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. And I have one on my right arm, which is probably the most important, which is the last thing my uh, the woman I loved wrote before she uh, died suddenly. And it says, I want to build a better life for myself and a better self for my life. And that quote there, when someone else encapsulates your entire body of work in one sentence better than you ever have, it's annoying. <laughs> uh, but I wanted a tattoo for 40 years and I'd always waited for the right one until I got exactly it. And when her sister told me they'd found that uh, when they were going through her things after she died, and she said, oh, she quoted you um, on the last thing she wrote. And then she told me that quote. And I said, I never said that. Uh, but everything else had been from a conversation we had earlier in the day. And we've been brainstorming ideas for a, a personal mantra. And I guess that's the one she came up with. And so she wrote it down and, uh, just before she died. And I, I, will all, I love that phrase. I want to build a better life for myself and a better self for my life. And I love that as well. I might have to steal that for my podcast art for you and st stick it in the corner. There we go. Um, well, probably the best request, best set of quotes I've had yet. Um, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? And it can't be what we've played on the whole episode of living your life. You can't, you shouldn't live your life in the attempt to satisfy others. Stop drinking. Hmm. <laughs> recognize that there are two groups of people in your life. And the sooner that you step back and evaluate who's in which group, the better off you're going to be. 
And the question is, which of these people are my friends and which of these people are people I drink with? And those are not the same things. And when I was 20, I wish I could look at myself and say, I want you to step back and say, who are your friends and who are the people you drink with? Because the resources and the attention and the focus of your life should be on one group and not on the other. And if I could have earlier in my life said, you are a good person and people like you for who you are, not how big the center of attention you are, put the beer down. My life would be significantly different. Wow. Final question. And it's a bit of a morbid way to end the episode, but I love it because I get some extremely fascinating answers and I'm sure you'll definitely have one. And it's something I've asked every single guest in every single episode I've had since the beginning. And it is, are you afraid of dying? Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, oh, wow. Um, God, what an interesting question. That's going to sit with me for like a while. I love those <laughs> questions where the person being asked learns more than the person doing the asking. You know, that's such an interesting question for me because there have been two occasions in my life where at that moment I wanted to die. Mm. Like I genuinely wanted it. But the fact that I didn't, does it mean that I'm afraid of it? I don't know the answer to that question because it's so odd. I can look back and remember those moments where I wanted to die, Um, like right to the edge where you've got a plan to do it, but something stopped me. So am I afraid of it? I don't know. Like after Anastasia died, I don't think I cared whether for a little while, but I also think that when, you know, I've been to 20 of my friends' funerals, I've only been to 10 of their weddings. And I guess I'm not afraid of dying as much as I'm afraid of what I've seen it does to people. Mm. Um, but man, what a good question. I don't feel fear um, except for the pain it causes other people. So yeah, that's a really interesting question. And what's going to happen is I'm going to come up with just the most kick-ass answer like half an hour from now. <laughs> yeah. Email Thanks it. for, asking. Thanks for yeah. asking that. Yeah, that made me think. That's, that's awesome. I'm yeah. glad I could provide something to you for being on my episode so that's all i have for you today and it has been incredible i've extremely enjoyed myself it's been so much fun so where can my listeners follow up with you if they've got any questions or if they just simply want to connect and follow what follow your work well if you come to canada just ask anyone if they know drew and you only (laughs) have to ask about five of us we all know each other I uh, know uh, uh, com. that's uh, d-r-e-w-d-u-d-l-e-y.com is the website and pretty much on all social media i'm at day one drew so d-a-y-o-n-e drew and yeah you can pretty much catch me there i'm told my instagram is fun <laughs> I, but hey, I if, it, if you want a testimonial to how instagram is a highlight reel go back and you can go back through my entire Instagram and not know that the person I love more than anything else in the world died. And if there's any other testament to the fact that Instagram is not an effective way of judging what someone's life is, it's that. When you, you don't even see stuff like that because, hey, that doesn't fit in the highlight reel. So mm-hmm. check out the Instagram. It's fun, but I also try to keep it as honest as possible. Of course. And I will leave all of those links in 
the show notes below. But once again, Drew, thank you for joining me on this episode of CEO Journals. Thank you for having me, my friend. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast. And I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible entrepreneurs every single week. So if you found any value in listening to today's episode, I'd seriously appreciate if you could smash that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating and review. It only takes a couple of seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. If you want to reach out to me, head over to my Instagram at CEO Journals or send me a connection request on LinkedIn. I'd love to speak to as many of you as possible. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to another incredible guest where we will be discussing their journey and providing some great tips for all you listeners. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and once again, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of CEO Journals.